so as promised a couple of years ago, or a couple of years ago, it seems like a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago before Labor Day, uh, I wanted to turn toward our um, our, our behavioral side of, of goal pursuit, goal attainment, that sort of thing. Um, I, I kind of just love both. I love talking about the food science, the things that we need to know from physiological and, and biological standpoints, but also... I think, as you'll see at my very final conclusions here, if we can't connect this neurologically, you know, linked directly to our output behaviors, then none of that stuff matters. So if you were to look through our entire catalog of episodes, you would see almost a direct split 50-50 between, um, you know, food science, physiology, biology, and all that physical type stuff and and the psychosocial neural type stuff where it comes to you know behavior directly and and I wanted to base today's overview first looking at why it matters uh why is it so difficult uh, why when when things are going well we take a lot for granted but what does it mean to fail if we are pursuing intentional weight loss intentional body composition change and, and a lot of times it does come down to the continuum of just just eating a little bit too much. We slip gradually into maintenance eating or we go all the way into episodic binge eating. And at some point, because a calorie deficit just has to be there consistently to take advantage of the efficiency of the metabolic switch and metabolic positioning, I just find most clients are in one of these two camps. And so let me give you a brief brief description before we dive into the most extreme, which would be, you know, binge eating, whether that's just kind of a, what I would call a normal, um, normal response is a biological response. There's food. We like it. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat more than maybe I intended. You know, we can call that a binge. Other people, a binge is full of extreme eating and shame and guilt and, and pretty pathological, scary behavior, scary to them uh, at times. So there's that side of the continuum. But first, when it comes to just, just not knowing how to really capture that uh, consistent calorie deficit, here's a couple examples of clients this week. A brand new client logged his first day. And uh, we, you know, I looked at it and uh, it was, you know, there was Chick-fil-A and a Chick-fil-A grilled chicken sandwich with waffle fries, small waffle fries. So I, I said, I'm guessing you didn't even feel like, you know, that was a bad meal, right? Like, of course not. Um, but you, you added up at the end of the day and because that meal alone was about a thousand calories and you could have made the exact same thing at home for a third to half of that, you know, that caused him to have a day of maintenance eating. And so that's just one day where you did a lot of work. Most of your food intake was fantastic. And you just kind of slipped up toward that line. And so that was a one day delay toward your progress. And then the next day it may be, well, I was out with friends and had a beer, or maybe it's the weekend and we went and had pizza. And, and I can dice any client that's having trouble losing and we dig into these details there are always those things like i had another client this week who said i only ate twice and we were you know we're discussing these things in in 
you know, a conversation and well, what did you have? And okay, here, here are my, my meals. But then it was, and did you have any snacks? You know, no, I don't, I, you know, I'm not a big snacker. And I said, well, what about this? And what about that? And pretty soon it's like, oh yeah, here are these other three snacks that I didn't tell you about that I forgot about. And again, very benign, innocuous food choices. They weren't bad, but it put him up to maintenance. And so those are the kind of things that when we tie the physiology to our behavior, we need to figure out, is it just a food thing? Um, do I just, you know, if it's just, I'm just not creating enough objectivity or accuracy, that's one thing. If I don't know how to get there, you know, that's another. Um, I had another client who was struggling this week and come to find out she's drinking a ton of diet soft drinks. And I said, you know, this is a little controversial, but for some reason with, with different physiologies, different body types, some people, this doesn't matter at all. And typically that's a pretty fast metabolic person. Like there are some people who can consume a lot of that and it's fine. Other people, it just causes a little hypoglycemia, a little extra hunger and research validates that, that it can increase hunger. Uh, and then for some people, it's a nightmare and I can't figure out even in the research because it seems to be conflicting, you know, why that is. We can look at the differences between sucralose and aspartame and acesulfame, potassium and stevia and all that. But um, I just know after 30 years of consulting that people who are not losing and, and we isolate it down to that soon as they stop drinking 12 Diet Cokes a day or having 30 packets of Splenda, they start losing body fat like crazy with no other changes. So again, that's you know something as, as very intricate and probably hidden as that can be a very physical thing that we're just not identifying. But then there is the physiology on, on um, you know, how, how our brains work to control our behavior, our what we would call our mind or our thoughts. So let me let me start here, trying to uh, you know link these two together, the the physical and the psychological. And and I want to first uh, restate something that I went over in this particular research review. So Dr. Robert Sapolsky is a um, is an he, he's a it, he's a primatologist. First of all, I'm trying to get these two things right. Um, and a neurological endocrinologist or an endocrine neurologist, something like that. But he deals primarily with the hormones in the brain and behavior and so forth, has a huge book called Behavior. Uh, he's retired now. He also has a new book coming out this month called Determined. And he's a big advocate of the concept of determinism because even when you think you are making a decision, there are so many things happening on a hormonal level, a neurotransmitter level, uh, very acutely. You know, what were you thinking the moments before? You know, think of something like road rage or, you know, crime of passion or something. Um, he goes all the way back to your ancestry, how, you know, your, your genes epigenetically and, and genetically are changed. Uh, even in utero, we know if your mother's in stress or her physical environment, chemicals that she has ingested completely change your neurological wiring. So then to say that we're all created equal, that we all have the same ability and capacity to make the, the best decisions or the worst decisions for the same level of willpower and discipline and so forth, it's just not true. 
So you have to understand that there is your conscious ability, your self-efficacy to make change. That's why we're here. That's why we talk about these things, that that is true. But it's against the backdrop of all of those things that are hardwired in. And so it's not as easy as just saying, oh, hey, thanks for that new information. Now that I understand that, I can apply it and I'll be perfect. Now I can reach my goals. That was the missing puzzle piece. It, there's just so much more to it than that. And so uh, give yourself that space for failure, understanding, as we'll talk about even today, that failure is part of success. It's not the opposite of success. And the fact that anytime you think it's just a psychological or behavioral issue, there is probably some pretty complex physiology underpinning that. So those are a couple of things that I want to keep tied together as we go through this. But th this first particular study that we had gone over in the past, where th this was from the research review, The Science of Binge Eating. And if you just look at the title here, What's Driving the Binge and Binge Eating Disorder? A Perspective Examination, Precursors and Consequences. So precursors and consequences, as Dr. Sapolsky would, would address himself. Uh, this particular study, and this is the only one we're really going to kind of dive into as a sample of our review today. Uh, they had 33 females aged all the way from 20 to 63, average age 45. They had already been assessed and diagnosed with binge eating disorder. So it wasn't just, hey, I overeat once in a while. It was clinically significant. Uh, BMI ranged, you know, from slightly overweight to pretty high. Um, average income was about the national average. Um, you know, the average person here is almost a bachelor's degree. So I, I think pretty, pretty kind of normal here. But they had a uh, a computer or or tablet with them that would give them prompts six times a day to just in, in these kind of survey studies, um, you know, they prompt you at that moment. The the bell rings or you're you're notified, and they will ask you a question, and they they're kind of logging this over time. So it, it's filtering a lot of information over time. This six times a day for seven days, and they wanted to see of these women who were diagnosed with binge eating disorder. <clears throat> Uh, you know, questions like, have you overeaten in the last hour or have you had a binge in the last day? And then things like, you know, what were you thinking about? Where where were you even? As you can see, most of these happen in the kitchen or living room if they were having a binge. Um, out of all of these times, 33 times, let's see, what was it? What did I say? Six, seven, so 42 contacts times 33. So 240, 264 binge episodes recorded. Uh, some of the correlations that they found were that, you know, these binges, as you would expect, happen in the kitchen or living room, wasn't necessarily at the drive through or at a concert or something, uh, heavily correlated with being alone. And uh, when they were asked specifically if, if there were, you know, what kind of mood you were in, the, the women were largely always in a negative mood ahead of time. Most people don't binge in a positive mood. And there we can go back to biochemistry, things like serotonin and so forth, or just rumination. As our friend, Dr. Hanscom talks about ruts, repetitive, unpleasant thoughts. Uh, people often describe having relationship issues or work-related different stressors would lead toward the binges. 
there was also um, th their personal attribution that when these women were asked, you know, what do you think caused the binge? Almost half of them were able to recognize that it's because I was in a shitty mood. You know, it's just it was I was in that state of mind. And that's when I feel overwhelmed and blah, blah, blah. So then we get into cortisol and why the brain itself as an organ uh, in that direct assault, the inflammatory literal autoimmune assault of stress of high cortisol, it wants to protect itself. Take your thoughts, your cognitive thoughts out of the picture your brain as an organ sees that environment and says, we need to change lanes now. And the quickest way to do that is to eat food, drive insulin, which drives serotonin, which brings cortisol down. So if you can't control your mood and your affect, you're, you're way more likely to have binge eating episodes, at least if you're in this category of already having struggles with that. Um, so again, I'm remember, I'm trying to link the physiological with the psychological. Why so much of our behavior depends on our physiology, but therefore why we have to spend some time controlling the environment of our physiology. It's not always, I just can't eat this food or I'm going to construct my environment. I'm not going to have these foods in my house. So, aha, I've solved my problem. We'll find ways around that. Even having the perfect macronutrient distribution, the right diet, the right coach, you still sometimes have to think, okay, what am I doing to my body physically that could be sabotaging my psychology? We know sleep is huge for all the reasons I just mentioned. And there's plenty of research that shows that. So again, this particular study, you know, just to show at the most extreme, because I think that's where we can get some, some very important information, we see, um, you know, those, those connections. So uh, when people in this study did lose control and they had binge episodes, they even said, a quarter of them at least, that it was an attempt to change their mood. So they even recognized what their brain was telling them. Um, some of them thought, um, you know, just kind of breaking a food rule, like they almost wanted, they were angry, like, why am I doing this? Maybe self-flagellation in a sort of way, which is, I don't deserve to be lean and healthy. And so I'm going to break these rules that I know I'm not supposed to. Some of them, you know, less than 20%, less than a fifth were like, I just wanted the food. It, it tastes good and I ate a little too much. And then that kind of got me spinning into another binge. I've had clients who struggle with binge eating. And I, I think that's almost a step of recovery where they get to the point where they can really intellectualize it a bit more and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I did. And it was this and it was this. And it's it's not so much shame or guilt based any longer, but they're starting to understand the mechanics. And so I think you see that reflected here. But here's here's something that's really interesting. The primary purpose of this perspective study was to examine the contribution of restraint and hunger as compared to affect-based or mood-based factors in the experience of binge eating among patients with binge eating disorder thus allowing us to simultaneously evaluate various aspects of the primary models of binge eating disorder. Major findings are as follows. Negative mood was significantly greater prior to binge 
to a binge episode compared to non-binge times, but significantly greater still at post-binge times. Um, they're getting that shame. Hunger was significantly greater prior to a binge. So again, physiology, if we let our blood sugar get too low, if we let our hypothalamic hunger cues get to us because we're not paying attention to meal timing, then again, our physiology can drive even something this serious. So um, participants attributed binge episodes to their mood more frequently than to hunger or abstinence violation. And we went through another research review that studied affect as much uh, and, and came to some even bigger conclusions. So uh, a couple more things just in this particular research review that we, we had gone over prior, uh, onset of dieting versus binge eating in outpatients with uh, binge eating disorder. Uh, this particular study, which I'm not going to go through all the details, said a substantial group of binge eating disorder patients report that binge eating preceded their first diets. So they were binging as yeah, there's another study I'm going to show you here with adolescents, uh, but they they felt like they had less control with food before they were even dieting. And yeah, this is not a hundred percent, but a substantial percent, 65. And uh, and that kind of forced them, so to speak, into a life of cyclical dieting at that point because they just couldn't control their food. So it makes me wonder, uh, both in that Sapolsky sense that uh, when somebody is feeling out of control uh, due to even environmental, parental type impacts, uh, we know, for example, that the highest correlation to a child having an eating disorder is a mother who incessantly expresses dissatisfaction with her own body. You know, a mother who is very expressive about, you know, I'm so fat, I'm disgusting. Why can't I be lean like my friends and a child watching their mother do that? That's imprinting the brain as the brain is development, developing as a child. And again, some of that hardwiring is very, very tough to get over. So some kids are experiencing binge eating and, and distorted or disordered eating behaviors that pull them into dieting. It's not necessarily the dieting that causes it. Um, but which dieters are at risk for the onset of binge eating? A prospective study of adolescents and young adults. Uh, going right to the conclusion here, again, skipping because we have a whole research review on this. Depression and self-esteem appear to be particularly salient factors involved in the relation between dieting and binge eating onset among adolescents and young adults. Not surprising to anybody here, I'm sure. You see it all the time in the news with social media. Early identification of these factors should be a priority to prevent the development of binge eating problems among already at-risk individuals. So I brought this study up as a base for us to now have our full review. And I want to ask this kind of question. In, in these three studies, kind of filtered down into just one thought, if you had a child and you know 65% of the time, disordered type behaviors drive people into those negative cyclical diets, and we know that it's related to mood and affect and so forth and the pressures that children you know, may feel through social media. From a physiological and a psychological perspective, 
how would you counsel these children or these young adults? What would you say? Here's, you know, hey, little Johnny, little Susie, as your friend, your uncle, your aunt, your parent, like we need we need to talk about this. I, you know, you're, you're distressed about it. We're seeing this behavior with binge eating or maybe weight gain, that sort of thing. And here, here's what we need to discuss. Most of us, I think would go right toward the behavior, like don't do that. Or, um, let's give you some nutrition information. Like let's go through, like, here's proper nutrition. If you eat a little more protein at these meals, have more fiber, less sugar, this, that, like we can, you can start integrating information and knowledge, which is very, very good. Um, but I think, I think we, we really miss a big opportunity to do what I'm trying to attempt here, which is to link the psychology and the physiology that there's this, um, I, I've said this to you guys before, but it's kind of a Hindu type, um, not metaphor. It is kind of a metaphor, but more of a, uh, uh, maybe a fable is, is the right word of an elephant with an elephant jockey or a rider. And the, the connection is that you, you think you're going where you want to go. Like you, you're the master of your body. You are like that jockey on top of the elephant, but that elephant is your brain. Like your thoughts, your consciousness, your cognitive ability to control all of your behavior. It, it'll happen once in a while when the elephant, your brain wants it to, when it's okay with it. But when that elephant really wants to go somewhere else, can you really stop it? You can't. You can't stop your brain from doing biologically what your brain wants to do without substantial effort. And a lot of that comes down to the neuroplasticity. So the link of we have to keep doing it, keep doing it. Every single tool we have, we bring to bear to learn and to create those new neural pathways. And eventually it gets a little easier and a little easier and a little easier but it's still an elephant. It's it's still there. It still has way more strength than you do when it wants to assert it. So um, here is, oh, I had one more here. I forgot about, um, about addiction and so forth. Yeah, let, let, me, let me skip past those because I want to get to this slide here. Um, in our catalog, besides the one we just went over, in some of these, like there are four or five episodes to hunger, four to dopamine, that sort of thing. Uh, many of them at the end here, I have, um, you know, direct food behavior. Some of them are more physiology based, but dovetail into psychology. But let, I'm going to go through just a few of these as things that I want to pull together in the next couple of weeks, because last year when we were going through one particular series, I asked you guys to really give me some of the things that that you think need to happen for us to gain better mastery, for us to say, okay, hey, like maybe a successful physique sport competitor who says, hey, it's time to lose 20 pounds for a contest or 30 pounds or this or that, or I'm a wrestler or an MMA fighter and I've got to make weight. And they just like tick, 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 just, just comes right off and done and they, they can do it. And then sometimes we can't and we wonder why we struggle and we're looking for those external goals like they may have. I, I think there are things that we can put in place 
like dominoes to say that the first thing we need to do, the first domino is maybe something like sleep. Are we getting enough sleep? Uh, because we know how difficult it is for the brain because of things like cortisol to to have any consistency. Um, the next domino may be, do we have enough um, bandwidth? Are, are we just trying to do too many things? Do we have five small kids at home and I'm working three jobs and I'm doing this and now I'm trying to diet? Is that like, that's just not going to work. Uh, maybe the next one is, do we have enough knowledge? Do we do are, do we know enough about food? Maybe the next domino is, you know, can I understand metabolic positioning and flexible dieting enough to to use some some skills to get there? And just on down the line, we can refine this. But then all of a sudden, what can sometimes become a domino that skews us in a di different direction is maybe a binge episode that throws us for a loop and we don't know what to do. Or maybe I'm struggling with one of these other behavioral things on that last slide. Because in reality, when these dominoes start to fall in a positive or negative way, there are downstream effects. It's not linear you all of a sudden have physiological things happening that you're not anticipating or psychological behavioral things that you don't anticipate. And just like things can sprawl out into many directions in a negative way, the more good things we have lined up, as I mentioned in that first domino picture, then we can keep it more linear. We can control it. We can recognize it. So the metaphor I keep coming back to with you guys is we got to learn how to stop those dominoes from falling. We we have to learn to get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to what triggers the chain reaction if we are if we're you know suffering through some negative consequences, negative behaviors. We have to start you know deciding okay I I can I can put this domino back in place and make sure it doesn't fall down again. And then I can stack up the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. We have to work ourselves backwards. And that does take a lot of recognition of all of these concepts. So let, let me come back to this uh, particular slide, because I think as you guys may have questions or suggestions, I can point to a lot of these. So my, my first question to you guys is I will go back to what I asked. Um, I, I wish I would have got that notebook. When I asked you guys this last year, I, I wrote a lot of your notes down because for the, the next book that that I'm writing in this, I, I want to have a huge section on this, the, the cognitive side of dieting. And if if we can decide here are the, the five tenets or the – you know, kind of the list, a linear list of things that we think stack up in place. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be the same for everybody. But I think there are some very, very common things that if we think through, it will be very, very easy to recognize which domino we personally need to work on. So while you guys are getting ready to jump in, I'll, I'll explain this. I put this in alphabetical order uh, just because that's how it shows up in my list. But something as simple as this, you know, the science of assertiveness, um, do you even have the ability to say, you know, I'm going to take this time out for myself. It's something I need to do. I'm going to spend a little of the family resources and a little of, you know, personal time and, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask for the help that I need and so forth. 
that's that's a personality trait coming back down here actually to personality traits uh that can be very helpful and if you're not good at that maybe that's a place that's one of the dominoes you need to focus on to say okay like let me let me think through this a little bit and make sure i do have some of the social pieces in place the support i need to help me to to get through this that that's a big deal for some people maybe not others contentment this research review we talked about the fact that countries there's a massive surveys on where we can decide um or not decide but we can we can almost levy you know exactly how successful somebody's going to be by their state of relaxed mindset by being content or not so you can be a content person i'm happy i'm laid back I'm not impulsive, but still want to improve to still want some, you know, progress in this area. Uh, we had a science of decision-making, which really gets into some of the neuropsychology of how do we really stay aligned with our goals? You'll, you'll remember, I always love to talk about that study from the Harvard um, moral psychology department that did functional MRI studies. And the fact that we make the best goal aligned decisions when we're not thinking when it has just become an embedded part of our of our internal intrinsic motivation things like rigidity versus flexibility i'll jump over here you know this that that kind of mindset if you're somebody who has these rigid rules i can't do this i must do this i've got to get this out of the house i got you set these kind of unrealistic boundaries and research shows that's a person who's not going to succeed long-term with body composition or health improvement. Uh, negativity bias and parental impact. I kind of talked about those a little bit. Um, hunger. There, there is a lot of, maybe, maybe that's why those last two slides on those research or those studies were in there. I wanted to talk about the difference between, you know, hunger driven by literal uh, need versus, um, you know, psychological craving type things. Uh, pretty recently, a few months ago, we even talked about income inequality and how that drives our success. Um, oh, here, here it is. Uh, I, I just heard a couple podcasters talking about the fact that the Anthony Oliver, I think his name is, the guy who did the viral song, number one song, um, Rich Men North of Richmond. And because this was such a, an immediate right-wing favorite was because he said very much like Ronald Reagan's very uh, infamous quote that, you know, we're fighting against welfare queens, meaning people who are just milking the, the social safety net systems. And so Anthony Adler had this song and there's again saying obese people, you know, on welfare, obese people on welfare, insinuating that anybody who is on welfare, who needs government assistance and they have the wherewithal, the resources to become overweight, then they're obviously cheating. Where if he knew anything at all about what he was speaking, he would understand that somebody in an unfavorable uh, income equality position, they don't have the time or the money to go to a gym. They don't have time to work out. They don't have the money to go buy you know, the foods and the resources that other people have. There is a direct correlation with ill health and and income inequality but again that is a that is a psychosocial thing there are physical environmental components to that and then there are the psychological components which could come back up even to assertiveness and so forth so as i'm making this list of 
steps for people to take. If if we had, you know, you know, the diet doc as a brand that is here to be evidence based and and help educate people. Uh, I want this to be a big part of our future, and I want to be able to say it's not just about macronutrients or flexibility or structure or meal planning, all these very mechanical steps, but here are some psychosocial neuro things for you to consider, and like everything else, it takes practice. It takes information and, and regulation, and we need to list some of these things out and go through these steps just as much as we do you know what we may think the psychological aspects are, which are kind of like do this, don't do that, as well as the those mechanical steps. So anyway, my question to you guys first, um, any questions you have when you look through this list or anything we talked about today, please feel free to bring it up as just a topic to discuss. This is your time to kind of sort through some things like that. If you have any ideas about things the, that may be not addressed here, I'd love to hear that and we can do some investigation. Uh, if you have your own personal experiences as like, wow, this really was kind of a breakthrough moment when I worked on this in one of these kind of categories, you know, it helped me do this. I, I would just love to hear any any thoughts you guys have on this. I, I gave you plenty of time to get ready. So love to see one of you jump in here. All right, I'll jump. Thanks, Jen. So, um, yeah, there's a couple. Of, there's there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot. Um, I've pulled up a couple of things that I was looking at and, and recalling. Um, so one of the big drivers of all chronic disease is stress. And stresses come from a lot of different sources. Um, I know one of the ones that we talked a lot about in pain Chronic pain is adverse childhood experiences. They've been tied to obesity and early death. So, um, and this is something that that is um, ingrained in your behavior uh, as you're developing. So as your brain is developing and growing, what you are learning from your family and your culture um, and your environment and the, the product of your social status is that... Um, it is the, the the learning of trauma and stress um, makes people tend to self-soothe with food as one of the things that they can do. Um, I don't know if I can share screen here. Am I permitted to? I, I may need to stop mine. So let me stop mine. And then okay. I think you can. Let me see if I can do it. Now you'd have to enable it. Yeah, um, jump in there. Um, so two things we could consider. I mean, I have so many more, but I just picked out two things um, in response to this. Let me know if I can share. I think I just enabled. Yes, I can. Okay. Okay, here's one. All right, so stress and eating behavior. So this is a... Let's see if I can move this around here. So this is um, a nice review, um, looking at the impact of stress and how that leads to, it, it came up because of, we were talking about binge eating. And so, you know, it's um, it, it is, it is behind a lot of eating disordered behaviors. So this is a good um, article to actually think about. And maybe we 
you know, we might want to discuss. Um, the food itself has addictive qualities. We do know that stress is an important factor in the development of addiction um, and in relapse. So um, if we think of hyper palatable processed foods as, as having addictive qualities, that is an issue too. So our, our clients and, and people that we're working with may have things deep inside of them that they may not even be directly aware of. Um, and that that could be driving food behaviors. In other words, binge eating behavior, if you look at it as an, as an addiction relapse syndrome, you know, this could be an important factor to consider for people. Um, another one that I'm going to bring up here um, is this. Dr. Hanscom and I talk about this all the time. Can you see this? Mm -hmm. Cognitive distortions. Um, these are like underlying ruts. So you can see how a lot of these just relate to some of the, the various factors that were listed in the studies that you were just going through. So um, uh, one of the things that just jumped off the page to me is I messed up my diet, right? So it's like all or nothing, right? I had that I had that plate of chicken wings instead of going like, well, OK, I had a treat. I'm done. No, it's like it's done. It's done now. Here goes the Costco sheet cake. You know, here goes two bags of Doritos and, and an entire package of Oreos. So um, so these cognitive distortions, you know, are, are really part and parcel with ruts, repetitive, unwanted thoughts. And these drive our behaviors, these drive pain, these drive stress, these drive you know, anxiety and depression and fear and anger. Um, and so this is a nice list of them. So you can look at these and see how this could affect someone who has an eating disorder. Um, you know, you're, you know, the, these are great examples and I can certainly send these to you or you can, well, certainly, you know, cognitive distortions, you can you can um, definitely look those up, but you know, all or nothing thinking should statements, man, we are full of should in this society. We should all over ourselves. You know, I, I should myself probably every day and have to catch myself and clean it up. So I think these are, these are things that create cognitive frameworks that are maladaptive for us and um, lead to, um, adverse behaviors because we don't have the tools. We, we don't have the tools to recognize, to be aware and to more, more or most importantly, regulate our physiology. So the first step in a lot of these things is to just calm down your nervous system and get out of that fight or flight kind of um, physiology. And if people can start to recognize, so people, let's take an example of a person with a binge eating disorder. If they can start to get awareness of the feelings in their body, not just the mood, but like the feelings in their body that accompany those moods, and they can learn techniques to calm down the central nervous system, to de defuse or de-emphasize the sympathetic stress-based response and lower those stress chemicals in the body, then cognitively they improve. I mean, we've, we talk about this in chronic pain all the time. If you are anxious or angry, your higher cognitive functions are basically offline. Your lizard brain 
and you're in lizard brain mode and that is how you're going to respond. And it seems not a big leap to imagine that there's where something like a binge eating behavior can become manifest because you are now in some kind of survival mode. And however you interpret a behavior as facilitating that survival mode, it's just like changing the chemistry, as you say, you know, changing the chemistry from cortisol to, um, you know, to serotonin. Well, if, if we can help people to recognize the feelings in their body and teach them techniques so that they can actually feel that their body is changing, like with breathing, for example, um, that they may be able to get the cortisol and the adrenaline down um, without having to consume, you know, a whole sleeve of Oreos and a bag of Doritos in order to do that. So those are just some of the things that I was thinking. Of. I mean, I could I could go on and on forever, but I I shan't because that's huh. not fair. Can can I say, Jen, that what you just described academically, intellectually, is I think understood by you know a good amount of people. Some people still need to know that. But I don't think anybody knows the impact until they feel it. Your your last statement about being able to change that chemistry in our body and know how, recognize, oh, here's this feeling. Oh, here that now how do I get out of that? It took me going to a specialized therapist 10 years ago for anxiety to really start to understand internally what I already knew academically. And I want to give you another example uh, because, you know, again, just feeling it in my own body was the proof like, wow, this is this is what drove me to therapy, having not not anxiety um, where I couldn't function, but just, like, you know, insomnia, like I feel this mounting, you know, these thoughts, repetitive, unpleasant thoughts, things like that. But a friend of mine who is a mental health therapist, a licensed mental health therapist who teaches this. He was one of the therapists who helped me. He has struggled with alcoholism. He has struggled with other issues. And he just went on a two-week, the classic Peruvian ayahuasca journey type things, where he had to totally yield to this process. And they went through several nights in a row of this ayahuasca therapeutic controlled environment. And let, let me let me read you what he texted me. This is a this is a mental health therapist, you know, close to my age, who already is very good at this and helping other people. Uh, he said, 12 days, one week of Senango, I don't know what that is, three nights of ayahuasca, pushed beyond my absolute limits, forced to face fears I didn't know I had, and found massive strength that I had no idea I was capable of. And he sent that to me and another friend. And his friend was like, oh my gosh, like we need, can we get together and debrief? And he said, give me some time to get my feet back on the ground. Like, it, 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 you know, the, the feelings that he did couldn't even connect. It took him this kind of medicinal experience. And even though I didn't necessarily go that route at that time, it was just a normal therapeutic intervention. Like you just don't, you don't know what's even happening. I think inside your body until you've got some support from somebody who can help you figure that out. So Jen, I, I re, I'm going to definitely do a couple of research reviews on these topics. That was very helpful. Yeah. And I think just the, the take home message is that, you know, the tools that are within the doc journey 
are the tools that you need to deal with this without having to go on to 14 day ayahuasca retreat. You know, those are tools that are accessible and people just don't, they, they need to understand them and learn them. Um, but by but by learning that curriculum, many of these things, in fact, you know, it's, it, most of these things can be dealt with by using a very simple approach like that, that doesn't require sort of extreme, um, you know, be behaviors or costs or trips or anything. Um, and these are going to be valuable tools for coaching people. You know, it's not going to be just related to, to chronic pain. I'm going to write that down. I'll send this to everybody. The the Doc Journey website is is it just DocJourney.com, Jen? Offhand. DOC, yeah. DOCJourney.com. So, and I'm glad you said that because yes, what I told my wife because we were together when I received this communication, and she said something, and I said, "Well, look, our friend was looking for this to happen. He needed this to happen. He wouldn't go to South America or somewhere, and so." He could have gone to some kind of religious conversion. He could have gone to a therapist himself. He could have done this. He could have gone through the doc journey. Like anything he would really embed himself in would have worked because he needed it and he wanted it. So he's right. now, as he's processing, he's creating these stories and connections to this because it was simply his time. And that's that's a big part of, of I think, what you're saying there, Jen. It's neuroplasticity, man. Yeah. And, and anything will work if you allow it to work or many yeah. things will work. I'm going to have to nod off a little or not nod off, hop off a little <laughs> early. I'm not going to nod off. I've got a phone call at noon, just so you know. So if I just disappear, I'll just say bye to everybody. Yeah. Thank you, John. Uh, when I have to hop in a few minutes, I will. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Charles, are you jumping in? Good to see you, by the way. Happy birthday again. Hey, thanks. Um, happy happy birthday to you to you as well, right? Was that the coming, other day? Coming up, what, what? coming up next week. Oh, it's it's coming. Up I'm next coming week. up okay. next week too. We get a lot of September birthdays. Happy birthday, Charles! Oh, nice. Thank you, thank you. A lot of Virgos in the house here, I guess. Nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll, I'll keep it quick. I you know, um, I mean, I've spoken with you about this. Uh, I think of several several occasions. I'm just a different person, like at night than I am during the day. Very disciplined. You know, very regimented. Got you know, have everything lined, you know, lined up in terms of what I'm eating, what I need to do, and um, it's you know, uh, it's like uh, you know, what whatever term you want to use, becoming a, a a vampire at night or or turning into a werewolf or Jekyll and Hyde, whatever monster analogy you want to use, because they all transform from one thing to the next. That's that's kind of me, and I have this history of of um, not um, eating. Uh, eating properly um, at night because I would suffer from the same thing as you. A lot of anxiety, thinking about you know work and my business and um, you know family and, and things and things of that nature. Um, and over the last, I mean, I, I guess I've been I've been working with you for some time, but over the last you know year and a half or or, or so, I've been trying um, to figure out you know, figure out that pattern and understand why it's happening. I know part of it because I also suffer from, you know, insomnia, bottom by, by the anxiety. But I'm realizing that um, to Jen's point earlier, that just having a routine um, helps quite a bit, uh, particularly at night. One of the things I've learning, I'm learning is that just, just going for a walk after dinner um, helps tremendously for whatever reason versus other things that I've, I've, I've tried and it helps to calm me down 
Um, so I think everyone has, has to go on their own personal journey and do a lot of trial and error to figure out what, what can help. Not to say that I'm perfect, right? Um, but I can certainly um, feel, in, uh, feel the difference and, and you know, see the, the difference in terms of our results. Um, Cause I know how to, I know how to lose weight. I mean, I, I, I can just really drastically decrease my calories. I've done that in the past, but you know, I lose muscle. It's not sustainable. Um, and I come out on the other side, probably worse. And I'm trying to do it the right way. Um, and a lot of that is not about knowledge as you alluded to before. It's really about the behavior part of it and, and doing that trial and error um, work to kind of figure that out. So. Yeah. Well, so I would say, well said. Um, and that's why I even made this comment to a client this week who is aggressively pursuing, you know, physique sport goals. And I, in, in those hard days, like this is just a tough, tough day, Joe, like talk me off the ledge. And I said, you know, it, if you think back to the whole week, maybe 95% of the week was, was livable, kind of like your daytime hours, Charles, but that once in a while, where probably for this person, it was very physiological, just low enough calories, low enough blood sugar. And if you if you find a way, could be that nighttime walk, like you said, Charles, but it's just having enough tools in your tool belt that you can get from one step to the next. You know, can I just make it to my next meal? And I gave this person the strategy, look, just if you're if you're physically that hungry, you know the difference between just a little hunger and cravings versus like, I feel like I need more food. Eat your next meal sooner. It's only been an hour. You wanted to wait four hours. I don't care. Eat, eat two meals back to back. I don't care. That may catch you up enough that then you're totally fine. Then you can start increasing your water the rest of the day. Then you can take that walk, maybe take that nap, maybe call a friend, do, you know, but it's just like one tool at a time, one step at a time, because in those cognitive distortions, Jennifer listed, you know, you saw catastrophizing. We both use the word ruminating, like you start to feel like everything is collapsing in. And if you just think, man, all I have to do is make it to the next decision point. Like, can, can I make a good decision now that gets me five minutes down the road? And most of the time, that diffusion of the stress is really the make or break moment because because even therapists will tell you that the old like if you can name it, you can tame it cliche or mantra. And so a lot of therapists, just because when somebody is in a state of panic, if the therapist can ask them a question, you know, what are you feeling right now? I'm feeling crazy. Well, what do you mean? What kind of crazy? Well, I'm feeling this like. What do you mean by that? Good. And all of a sudden they they kind of sink them into their intellectual process. And physiologically, cortisol is just coming down, 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 down. And before you know it, in just a couple minutes, they feel fine. Like, wow, I thanks, Doc. You were great. And all they did was get them to stop catastrophizing. Um, and, and I just want to um, add to your point. Um, I think that's what just going why why going for a walk in particular helps me because I'm not just going for a walk. It's not just a physical, but I'm also thinking about all right, why am I feeling this way? Why why am I feeling anxious? What what is it that I, I didn't do? What's going on in my mind? So it helps me, it 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 removes me from my environment so I can actually process some of these things just by, you know, leaving the house and and thinking about it. And the next thing you know, I'm feeling more calm and relaxed, to your point. And that's exactly why I said earlier today 
what would you guys tell a child struggling with this? If if you had a child yourself and they were struggling with an eating issue that you thought could this is could be the beginning of a life of struggle, or we can address it, like what would you tell that child right now? I'm asking you to do what you just said, Charles, which is you come out of your own head to become your own omnipotent narrator. So you're on that walk and you're saying, hey, Charles, like, what are you feeling? Like, what is going on? And you're like, I don't know, Charles, like, what am I feeling? And like, you're having this inner dialogue and it's just, you're, you're now stepping out of your emotion. And that's, that's, that's an important part. Self, self self-perfectionism is, uh, well, perfectionism, which a lot of us have, uh, and certainly with competitors and stuff. I mean, we're, we're very driven people. The most well-intentioned people suffer the most. Um, because our thoughts are, are driven and directed very hard. And so what, what you may find as you start to delve into this a bit is that a lot of self-criticism is actually self-directed anger um, and your nervous system is fired up. So if you do take a walk in nature, if you meditate, if you listen to music, uh, you know, you just get up and dance or anything, you're putting your attention somewhere else. Um, and that putting your attention somewhere else takes you away from those those repetitive unwanted thoughts um, and it does right away tend to calm down the nervous system so that's just the mechanism there isn't one right way or wrong way but there are a whole lot of tools that can be used uh, to that good effect but i think most people don't recognize they think um you know perfectionism and um and being the best and being very driven and stuff they think that's that's a virtue and it's it's actually um, you know, self-directed anger in a lot of cases. And, and I think that's why feeling these things in your body, um, uh, the embodied feelings that, instead of just naming the emotions, um, is more important because then you know that you need to attend to your nervous system. All right. I gotta go guys. Okay. Thank you, John. Yeah. And, and, and on Dr. Souter's note there, did you guys know if you just hug yourself or place your hand over your heart? or look at a mirror and smile, like you'll start increasing serotonin and decrease cortisol. Um, yep. I, I know my own mood changes when I realize like, wow, I've just gotten out of the habit of playing music in my office when I work. And all of a sudden I put on a good playlist and I'm, you know, typing you guys messages and I'm dancing around. And all of a sudden I, I, I'm in a much greater mood and that helps all of my behaviors. Absolutely. Thanks, Jen. Have a good weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. Happy birthday. Thanks. Any uh, any other thoughts or questions, guys? This is such a big topic. Let me let me remind you that we will be talking about this for the next couple of weeks and even digging into some new territory. I'm going to do a little bit more of a formal review of some of these um, topics that I showed you the list of, but uh, definitely a lot of time to sink your teeth into this. Maybe practice a few things or come back with other questions because this is a this is important stuff. Go ahead, Kevin. I can't help but mention. The power of self-determination. Perhaps it's oversimplifying everything or funneling it down to three major or three components of motivation, which could be, could be an issue. But then again, if you still funnel, however, whatever's going on, whether it's a nutrition and or adaptive behavioral components, um, or in a sense of cognitive distortions, it still comes back to what is it? Is it an autonomy thing that we feel is threatened? Is it a competency? In that case, it probably is that. Or is it a lack of support or a sense of belonging? 
it's it likely can be funneled down to that from a very simplification of which then we can then execute whatever tool, behavioral modification, et cetera, to fix whatever's going on or at least be a distractor, whatever it is. But um, to me personally, that has been a, that has been the, the pinnacle of my behavioral improvements, you know, seven ish years ago, I knew what to do nutritionally, but you know, I still had binges because of behavioral distortions. I was telling myself from a dietary perspective or from a behavioral thing, but it affected my dietary choices at some point. It's just, it's, this is not sustainable or really credible from my, you know, as integrity being a huge value and a uh, sense of competency to me, that's what it came down to. And it's just, this is not, this is not how I should be behaving. So, um, understanding that that theory has been so paramount to me and so simple in theory that that's what I use to help coach clients that deal with or have just overeating, you know, um, episodes, because if we can have them at least identify what's missing more or less, we can then start executing something very simple to alleviate that or prevent that domino from falling next time. I'll make sure. I, th I think we did a couple of research reviews that touched on this. One of them I listed as self-efficacy, but I'm glad you brought this up as well. And, and we'll close with this. So we, we're kind of at the hour mark and then we'll pick the conversation back up. Please. I hope you guys come back in the next couple of times. I, I think that's, that is the first domino that impacted my life, Kevin, um, without even knowing it by the time I was in the first, second, third grade, and me just looking at the circumstances I was in, this is a very common feeling and motivation for a lot of people. You hear them tell their, you know, quote, success stories. And you look at me coming from a family of financial poverty, of just total ill health and, and no core values in any one of those directions. And, and even my siblings who kind of got trapped in that and everybody who has ever met my family looks at me and like, even my own kids have said, hot like are are you sure like how did you come from that and it was just because at a very early age for some reason i felt that self determination theory model obviously i didn't know that's what it was but the striving for autonomy which is another good way of saying self efficacy that i can control my own destiny i can do this if i'm not doing it then I'm choosing not to do it for some reason. And maybe it is competency. Like you said, maybe I just don't have the right information, but I'm I'm the only one who's going to save me. And if I'm not doing it the way I want, I need to find out what pieces are missing because I'm the puzzle maker. I, it's, it, it rests on me. And I know you went through that in college and your own health. Uh, and so, yeah, I, th I think that's the first domino. So you started us off on a, or ended us on a good tangent right back where we should be beginning. But anyway, you guys, thanks for hanging in there for this full hour. This is going to be good. We're going to, by the end of this, we'll we'll have that working model of what I think was a, a good pathway to see all of these. Um, so I'll see you guys next time, Monday, uh, perhaps if you can make it, but have a great weekend and be ready to dig in for the next few weeks here. See you guys.